Acts chapter 15. With them, they sent the following letter. The, the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of mangled or of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You would do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad by its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they would, and many others, taught and preached the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let me add my uh, welcome to you all this morning. It's good to see you. You know, when I, uh, when I graduated from high school, I knew that I wanted to be a pastor, so I went to uh, Bible college, and I went to an old-school, hardcore, fundamentalist roots Baptist Bible College. It was actually called... Baptist Bible College. Uh, it's in Pennsylvania where I, I used to live in the States. And it was a great school and I loved my time there, but man, it had strict rules. We had dorm curfews every night, 10.30 on weekdays, midnight on weekends. And if you got caught outside your dorm without permission after those times, you'd be in a lot of trouble. We had room checks every day to make sure our rooms and bathrooms were cleaned. And if you didn't clean, you'd get demerit points. And if you got three demerit points, you started getting fines. And none of us had money. Obviously, there were no boys and girls' rooms or girls' and boys' rooms. You couldn't watch TV or movies in your rooms, and you weren't allowed to go to the movies. You could only listen to music that had a clear Christian message. There's no dancing. There's no alcohol ever. And you had to dress in sort of business casual when you went to class. There's lots of grooming rules. Guys had to shave every day. That was my least favorite rule, which is why I have a beard now. One rule I didn't mind so much was that guys also had rules for how long their hair could be. Their hair couldn't be past their eyebrows, their ears, or their collar. It was, it was very, very strict. Um, and of course, girls had rules about modesty, lengths of skirts and tops and all those kind of things, and there's more and more and more and more and more rules. And of course, when you get a couple hundred 17 to 22-year-olds together and give them a whole bunch of really hard rules, they bristle and push back, don't they? And some of the students rebelled hard against the rules. There were some that were just always in trouble and didn't follow the rules. It wasn't like it was a surprise for them. They knew going in what, what the rules were going to be, but living with it, I just, they just pushed back against it. But then there were the clever ones, the ones that I, I kind of couldn't help but admire for their uh, inventive ways around the rules. Two guys I remember in particular found loopholes in the grooming rules. There was one guy that came to school with long hair and would not cut it, so he gelled it straight up. 
There were no rules about tall hair. Another guy, uh, so you had to shave every day, but you were allowed to have a mustache. Not a beard, but a mustache, because the people in charge were stuck in the 80s, I guess. I don't know. Uh, and so one guy grew a goatee and then shaved a slit at the bottom and said, no, it's a mustache. Now, neither of these looks were particularly flattering on these guys, but they got around the rules. They found the loopholes until the administration changed the rules to close the loopholes. You know, when I, when I tell people about the Bible college that I went to and the rules that we had, people usually laugh or they roll their eyes. Some people even get indignant about it. Right? Now, I did my fair share of rolling my eyes against the rules while I was there. But the, it sort of seems ridiculous, maybe even wrong, that they would have such strict rules. Christians, we have an interesting relationship with the rules, don't we? You know, there are people that think being a Christian means you try to follow all the rules in the Bible so that you can make God happy with you and go to heaven. And anyone who's a Christian would say, no, that's actually the opposite of what we believe. That's not right at all. And then if you try to explain that, they'd say, well, so then you don't have to follow the rules. Is that it? And well, that's not it either. So what is our relationship to the rules? That's our big question for today. As a Christian, what is our relationship to the rules? That question's on display in Acts 15, the passage that Mark read for us and also that we looked at last week too. And actually, the passage that we're going to look at next week, it's also in there. And if we, if we understand this passage properly, we're going to be able to understand how to answer that question as Christians a little more clearly. What is our relationship to the rules? So as I said, our, our passage today is really a follow-up from last week's passage. The church leaders in Jerusalem just had a big meeting to discuss a controversy in the church, and now they're sending out a letter to the other believers saying, here's what we've decided. If you missed last week, I'll explain more about what that means as we go along. But let's pick up and read again Acts chapter 15, verse 22. Then the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, decided to choose some of their own men to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they also sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Which, by the way, is right around where that big earthquake happened recently. It's sort of in the same area, generally. Greetings. We've heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. So this summarizes again what, what we saw last week. Just, just briefly, we, we've been seeing recently in Acts that more and more and more Gentiles have been coming to Jesus and, and becoming Christians. And at first, the, the Jewish people were basically okay with that, but as it happened more and more and more, some of the Jewish believers started to get nervous about that. They were uncomfortable. That all of a sudden, these people who had been pagans, who for generations and generations had lived, lived separately from God's people, were now turning to Christ. And in turning to Christ, who was the Jewish Messiah, they, they still weren't following the Jewish laws, the, the laws that had marked out God's people for generations as God's people. And particularly, they were concerned about the, the issue of male circumcision. If you wanted to be part of God's covenant community, the males in your household would have to be circumcised. And they said, this is, this is literally what separated us, cut us apart from 
the rest of the world. And now you're saying you're part of us, but you're not participating in these things that for generations have shown who we were as God's people. And they even go so far as to say, you cannot be saved by Jesus unless you get circumcised. Which is another way of saying, you can't really be saved by Jesus unless you become Jewish first. And so this letter that they're writing out after the the elders and the apostles, the church leaders of Jerusalem, have gathered together to discuss this. This letter is saying, listen, we understand what these people were saying. They said that they came from us, but they didn't have our authority. That wasn't a, a true and proper message from us. So here is the true and proper message. We're sending, your, you know Paul and Barnabas, we're sending Silas, who becomes important in the rest of the story in Acts, and a guy named Judas, not that Judas, different Judas, uh, to go and tell you what we've decided. And so here's the message in verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat, strangled, uh, meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Now, here's what they said. No, you, you don't have to follow the whole law of Moses. You don't have to get circumcised in, your, in the males in order to be saved. But, here are, some, here are four rules that we'd really like for you to keep. Those four rules are, don't eat food sacrificed to idols, don't eat blood, don't eat the meat of strangled animals, and don't engage in sexual immorality. Now, Aaron, this is really a recap of everything Aaron was talking about last week, and as I was thinking about it, you know, what are we talking about this week as we split this passage up into two passages? I think one of the things that as we read this passage, it's really confusing for us, is why are these rules imposed on these Gentile Christians? Like, what are they about? No, you don't have to follow the laws, but here's some other rules that you can follow. Here's, some, here's a, just four things. These are kind of confusing rules for us to think about what do they have to do with us. We're going to camp on these four rules today and think about what, what they actually are saying, where they come from, what they mean for us, what they meant for the original readers of this letter. And as we think about this, it's going to helpful help us to understand our big question, the answer to our big question of how do Christians relate to the rules. So as we do this, one thing that's really going to help us to think about this is that there aren't just four rules that are all the same kind of rule. There's actually four different categories, four different kinds of rules listed here. Broadly speaking, there are actually two broad categories. There's two commandments and two principles But even each one of those is slightly different from the other. We need to think about the nuance of each of them to really understand what's going on here. There's two commandments, two principles. So we're going to start by talking about the commandments. There's two kind of commandments. The first one is a moral commandment. We're going to start at the end of the list of rules. They're told in verse 29, you are to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, that's a rule that anyone with any kind of familiarity with the Bible you should read that and be like, oh yeah, I understand that. That makes, that makes sense, right? That's a good rule. Now, there are, there are lots of rules in the Bible that are, are moral commandments, right? They're timeless, good rules, and they're true for every culture and every generation and every individual. When we think about moral commandments, the Ten Commandments is a, a good place to start, right? These things that, are, that carry on to us today. Do not have any gods before me. Do not make for yourself any idols. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. 
Remember the Sabbath. That one's actually a bit of a tricky one. We don't have time to get into that today, but just know there's an asterisk there. Obey your parents in the Lord. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not covet. Now, of course, there are more moral, moral commands than that. And like I said, there's a little asterisk on the fourth commandment. But that's a good starting point. When we're thinking about what are the moral commandments that continue on to us today in the church, that's a good starting point. I want to say more about moral commandments, but before I do, let me show you the other kind of commandment, and then we can kind of compare them a little bit. The second kind of commandment, or the second kind of rule in here, is a commandment, a, a, sorry, a ceremonial commandment. It's different from a moral commandment, it's a ceremonial commandment. It's the second one in our list of rules in Acts 15, 29. He says, you are to abstain from blood, that is eating blood, consuming it. Don't eat blood. In, in the Old Testament law, there are a lot of rules about blood. I don't know if you've ever read Leviticus. There's a lot of rules about blood in there. About not eating blood. About what to do with blood when you sacrifice an offering to the Lord. Uh, forgive me for this, but about purification after menstrual bleeding. There's all kinds of rules about blood. And along with those rules about blood are a whole bunch of other rules about other things that Jewish people weren't allowed to eat. Rules about how to sacrifice and worship God at the temple but other, th- other things that made a person impure and how to be cleansed after you've come in contact with those impure things. So these are ceremonial rules. They're ritual rules. They're different from the moral commands in the Bible. Now, he- here's the problem with this distinction, right? There aren't, you, you, if you read through Leviticus, you don't have like, here's a section on moral rules, and then you come to another section, here's a section on ceremonial rules. They're all kind of mixed together, Right? So how do we know which one is which? How do we know which one's a moral law and which one's a ceremonial command? Well, the, the good answer for that is you look at the New Testament. What does the New Testament say about this command? Does this command get repeated by Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament as something the church needs to continue to do forever? Or does the New Testament say, actually, Jesus came and brought that command to a close. That command was pointing to him, and now that he's come, he shows us we don't need to offer sacrifices anymore because he is the great high priest. We don't need priests anymore. He is the greatest sacrifice. We don't need sacrifices anymore. You're going to look for that in the New Testament and say, what, is, what does it say? Does it say to continue to not murder people? Okay, we should not do that then. But does it say Jesus is the final sacrifice? Okay, then we don't need to make sacrifices anymore. These ceremonial sacrifices aren't commands for us to keep. They were to teach Israel about God and to point people forward to Jesus, to prepare the way for him. Now, the distinction between moral commands and ceremonial commands is actually really important for us to understand. You, you may have heard at some point in your life the, the following criticism about what the Bible says about homosexuality, right? You can look at Leviticus, and there are very clear teachings about homosexual sex being a sin, that God says don't do that. But Leviticus also has very clear commands about not eating shellfish. And so Christians get accused of cherry-picking, which verses we want to follow. They're still important for today. So is that, a, is that a valid criticism? Well, it is if you don't understand how this works. Because when you go to the New Testament, the New Testament makes it very clear. It has continually commands, even actually quoting from the Old Testament, homosexual sex is a sin. You, sh- you shouldn't do it. It doesn't mean that those people are second-class citizens and we shouldn't love them. But it means there is a standard here that God has. And yet, there are also parts of the New Testament that say, 
actually, Jesus called all, clean, all foods clean. Those commands about eating food are, do not carry forward for the church. Back in, uh, earlier in Acts, we saw the story about Peter when he first shared the gospel with Cornelius, and the first Gentile who became a Christian. Before that happened, he had a vision from God where God lowered down that sheet of animals and said, Peter, I want you to eat some of this. And Peter said, God, I've never eaten anything unclean. And do you remember what God said? He said, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. And, and in that, that story, God's showing Peter, actually, that rule about eating, not eating certain kind of unclean foods, that was a way to show you about being separate from the Gentiles. But now that I'm show, sharing my salvation with the Gentiles, that rule isn't needed anymore. And so sexual immorality of every kind is still forbidden by God for the church, but we're allowed to eat whatever we want. That's very clear in the New Testament, which, of course, brings up the question of what's going on here with these three rules about what we need to avoid eating. We'll, we'll get there in a moment. But first, let's think about a little bit more about what our relationship is to commands in the Bible. The biggest truth to remember, the first part of this that we need to remember is this. You are not saved by keeping the commands of the Bible. You're not saved by keeping the commands of the Bible. Even if you could do them, even if you could keep them all perfectly, which you can't, no one can, that's not their purpose. Can I show you a passage in Romans chapter 3 that talks about this? Listen to what Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. You can't be declared righteous in God's sight by doing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sins. The commands of God help us to see that we're sinful. Right? It's pretty easy to feel good about yourself when you're not measuring yourself against a solid standard. But when it comes to the standard of God's law, we can look at it and say, I fall so far short of this, I couldn't possibly keep all these commands. So part of the, the purpose of God's law is to show us that we're sinful, but that's not the only purpose of it. Because the next verse in Romans 3, Romans 3.21 says this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. So the, the law and, and the rest of the Old Testament, the prophets and the rest of it, they testify, they point to the righteousness of God that's been, been revealed in the New Testament. So that... that doesn't just mean, although it does mean this a little bit too, it doesn't just mean that we look at the law and we see, oh, God is holier than I am. That's, that's true, but that's not what this passage is really trying to say. What it's trying to say is, when Jesus came, he showed us how we could have God's righteousness. Not earn God's righteousness, but receive it as a gift. And the purpose of the law and the rest of the Old Testament was to point us forward, to say, one day, Someone's going to come who's going to show us how we can receive the righteousness of God instead of trying to earn it for ourselves. That's what verse 22 in Romans 3 says. This righteousness is given, it's a gift, it's given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The law was designed to point forward to Jesus who would come to show us how to not earn God's righteousness again but to receive it as a gift. So you, you can't, Earn your salvation by keeping the commands. The next piece of the puzzle that we need to think about is that because the Old Testament points forward to Jesus, Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says something really important. He says, I have come to fulfill the law. I've come to fulfill the law, he says. What that means is that he came to show us what the law is really all about. 
What was the point of all those ritual laws? Well, they, they point us to Jesus, especially the sacrifices, as we said. Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law. That means two things. First of all, he obeyed the law perfectly. He was the only human being who's ever lived who completely followed every single commandment at every moment of his life, never failing at any point of it, even as a child. And not just in the letter of the law, but also in the heart of the law behind it. He completely fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. But there's another requirement of the law rather than just keeping it. The other requirement of the law is if you don't keep it, there's punishment. There's a curse from God for those who don't keep the law. And the New Testament teaches us that Jesus also met that requirement of the law, not for himself, but for us as a substitute. Going on in Romans chapter 3, Romans 3.25 said, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. That phrase that Jesus was a sacrifice of atonement, a more literal translation of that would be he, he was a propitiation. Now, that's a big word that very few people know what it means, but, but here's what it means. That Jesus absorbed all the punishment that God was going to pour out on us for our sins. He completely took it on himself. There's none left for us. Jesus was the substitute. He was the sin offering, the sacrifice of atonement, the propitiation, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So here's here's what that means. If you have faith in Jesus, and you know that he died and rose again for your sin, you never, ever have to worry about punishment. You don't ever have to think, oh, God must be so angry with me about this. He's not. Because it's not based on how you act, but based on what Jesus has done. God is not angry with his children ever. He doesn't punish his children ever. If you're here and you're not a a believer, you haven't received that salvation, I, I, I want you to know that offer of Jesus taking the punishment that you deserve And you being accepted as God's child who has no need to worry about punishment or anger ever again, that offer is open to you. And I would just urge you to listen to God's word, to see how Jesus fulfills these commands for us, both in keeping them and taking our punishment. How he died and rose again as a substitute, as a propitiation, absorbing the punishment that we deserve for us. Put your faith in him and, and you'll be saved. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Trust in Jesus. You know, as I said, we're not saved by keeping God's commandments. And Jesus fulfilled the law. And that's what Acts chapter 15 has has been talking about, right? Back in chapter 15, verse 1 of Acts, the story starts off, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch And we're teaching the believers that unless you're circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Right? The overwhelming teaching of the Bible is that they were wrong about that. And that's what the council has decided. Look at verse 11. Peter says, no. We believe it is the grace of our Lord Jesus that we, by the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, talking about Jewish people, just as they are, talking about Gentiles. Right? Romans chapter 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, but all Jew and Gentile are reconciled to God by by Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the answer for everyone. Salvation comes by faith, or by, by God's grace through faith 
But there's a third piece to this, right? We don't just have to discard the law because we don't have to worry about punishment anymore. The third piece of this is this. Our salvation isn't just about forgiveness of our sins. Our salvation is not just about not worrying about punishment anymore. Our salvation is about power to hate our sin and love God's commandments. It's about our lives being changed. So we don't want to live that way anymore and we can live the right way. Because of the gospel, obedience to God isn't about fear of punishment or desire to prove ourselves. It's a joyful response to God's love. Think about sin for a minute. Why do, why do we sin? Why do you sin? Why do I sin? It's because in that moment, we love it. It feels good. We want to do it. It feels so good until it doesn't feel good anymore. And we're left empty and surrounded by the destruction that we've caused. God's grace isn't to just bring forgiveness to that mess, but it's to save us from that, dis- that cycle of destruction. God's faith in Christ comes with new life that we don't have naturally by ourselves. It comes through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. So that when that temptation comes, we're aware that we don't actually want to do it. We're given a power to say no to that temptation. None of us are perfect and we all give in to sin, but the message of the gospel through our lives is that over time, as we rely on the Holy Spirit's power and grow in our love for Jesus, we will grow in our ability to say, no, this is not good. I need to say no. I need to ask for help from people and shine a light on this sin so that I don't keep doing it in secret. I know this is bad and I hate it and I want to change. And I can change by God's power. So for Christians, our our primary relation to God's moral commands is that we love to keep them. Not just that we're required to, although we are, but our primary is that we we love God's commands. We we want to do them. And, And I mean, think about this. Think about the sin that gets you so many times. Those times when, by God's grace, you say no to it. Aren't you filled with joy and thankfulness? And doesn't the righteousness of God that's showing through your life, just isn't it better? That's the power of our salvation. But what about our, the ceremonial commandments? What, what's our relationship with them? Like I said, we aren't required to keep these anymore because Jesus has completely filled them up with meaning and showed us that they pointed to him. But knowing them is really good for us, Right? Reading through those sections in Exodus about building the tabernacle, when they get the design for the tabernacle, and then they sin, and then they build the tabernacle, and it's almost like they just copied and pasted those chapters. Or reading through the Leviticus, where it's all about you know, the sacrifices, and how the priests need to act, and all the, the rituals around this stuff. That, that can be tedious to read. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I understand. But if we spend the time to think about what they're saying, and what they mean, they teach us about ourselves and our sin. They teach us about God and his holiness and his mercy and his compassion. And ultimately, they point us to Jesus. We understand his sacrifice so much more when we understand the ceremonial commandments that he came to fulfill and how they point us to Jesus. If you tried reading Hebrews without understanding Leviticus, it's not going to go as well. But you know, we also have ceremonial commandments in the New Testament too, don't we? 
Baptism and communion are commands that we're required to keep. There's nothing moral about being dunked in water or sprinkled with water or whatever, right? There's nothing moral about drinking juice and bread or wine and bread. It's a way that shapes us as we regularly with God's people act out this ceremony of remembering the gospel through physical means. It shapes who we are. It shapes our character. It shapes our understanding of God. We should love Communion Sunday. It shouldn't just be a rote thing that we do. Oh, it's that time. Oh, I guess we got to better do that. We should look forward to it, remembering that our brothers and sisters are sharing a meal with us, and that meal is Christ. We're, we're, we're feasting together because we have Christ in common. On Baptism Sundays, we should celebrate our brother or sister who's declaring their faith in Jesus and acting out the death and resurrection and the washing through it. And if you're a Christian who's never been baptized, you know, what, is it, what are you waiting for? Get on that. We're going to have some baptism classes coming up uh, next month, and we're going to do a baptism on Easter Sunday. Join us for that. We want you to be part of that. These ceremonial commands that we have in the New Testament, just like the Old Testament ones, they, they shape us as we go through these rituals, and they remind us of who Jesus is. Help us to grow in our love for him and our holiness. So those are the commands. All right, now we get to the principles. There are two principles in here. They are the second and third command in this list in Acts 15, 29. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols and from meat of strangled animals. Now, neither of these rules, strictly speaking, are actually in the Old Testament. You're not going to find those anywhere in the Old Testament. So, So what's going on here? Are they just making up rules to impose on the people? So, No. These rules and this wording, you're not going to find them in the Old Testament, but they're principles extrapolated from rules that are in the Old Testament. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. So let's start with abstaining from eat, uh, meat with, uh, of the meat of strangled animals. We're going to start with the meat of strangled animals. The Old Testament law didn't allow Jewish people to eat blood, as we've seen. They were required to slit the animal's throat and drain the blood up before they ate it. But if you strangle an animal to death, then you haven't done that. And there's still blood in the animal, right? And so this would be a a regular way that some people would kill animals in that day. And and they would know, well, if you're eating an animal that was killed by strangling, you probably haven't drained the blood out of it. And you're probably breaking this ritual commandment from the Old Testament. And so what this is, is an extrapolated principle from the clear commandment in the Old Testament. If we're not allowed to eat food with blood, that must include this specific application of animals that have been strangled. So more specifically, this third kind of rule is a principle of application. You're taking a principle and saying, how does this apply to different areas of my life? We do this all the time. For example, there's no specific command in the Bible against looking at internet pornography. Didn't have the internet, doesn't even talk about pornography. But it's clear that it falls under the broader category of sexual immorality, right? I don't think anyone's going to argue with that. How, and, but if you want to, let me point out to you that the word sexual immorality in this passage and every other passage in the New Testament is the word pornea in Greek. The word pornography literally means a writing or drawing of sexual immorality. Though we don't have to worry about what we eat, right? We talked about that. The principle here that we need to take away from this is not just to follow the letter of the law, but the heart behind it. How does this idea in in God's morality apply to our lives in all these different 
parts of what modern life looks like. Right? That's how Jesus lived. I said that already, right? He regularly came into conflict with the religious leaders of Israel who kept the letter of the law while being arrogant, uncaring hypocrites. We need to not just be letter of the law type people, but know for ourselves that we need to, what we need to do or what we need to not do in order to live godly lives. We need to, we need to think of, in terms of these kind of principal categories when it comes to the media that we take in, when it comes to the way we spend our money, the way we relate to our families and our friends and in dating relationships. We need, we need to not just think in terms of categories of allowed or not allowed, but what brings honor to God? This is a rela- conversation that I used to have a lot as a youth pastor with teenagers. How far am I allowed to go with my girlfriend? Where's the line? No, that's not, the Bible doesn't say find the line and stay on this side of it. It says flee, flee from sexual immorality. There's no rule about holding hands with your girlfriend or kissing your girlfriend in the Bible, but you have to think about what does the Bible command you to do? How do you apply that principle? So that's the third, a principle of application. The fourth rule is also a principle, but it's, and it's even a principle of application, but there's another layer to it, right? Abstain from food sacrificed to idols. This is an application of a moral command to not worship idols, right? If I go into a temple of an idol and take part in the ceremony and bow down and then eat the food, then eating the food was part of my worshiping that idol and it was part of the sin. It's pretty clear. But it becomes a little bit less clear. What if I go to the market in a pagan town and I buy food that I know was sacrificed to an idol? Have I worshipped an idol? Have I participated in that process? Have I contributed funds to that? Have I sinned by doing that? It's a little, little bit more murky, right? And the Apostle Paul actually wrote about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, no, you haven't sinned, it's just meat. An idol is nothing. You can eat meat, it's okay. But then he goes on to say this, 1 Corinthians 8, 7. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it, that is their conscience, is defiled. He goes on a little bit later to say, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died, this, this brother or sister of yours that Jesus died for, which you should care about that person, right? This weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your freedom and your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. So Paul, Paul is saying this, like, listen, this is the principle. If it doesn't bother you, if it doesn't bother your conscience in this, this area, it's fine. You haven't really sinned. But you need to be careful because there are people around you who may not understand, have the same uh, uh, comfort, comfort in their conscience. And your freedom to do this may have a negative effect on their conscience, on their faith, and it may hurt them. So this is a principle based on conscience. That's the fourth one. We had a moral command, a ceremonial command, a principle of application, and a principle based on conscience. We need to consider how our actions affect others around us. You know, understanding these principles really gets us to the heart of what's going on in Acts chapter 15. 
Out of the four rules laid out here, only one is a timeless moral command to abstain from sexual immorality. The others aren't, right? The, new t- the rest of the New Testament tells us we don't have to keep these three laws. It's not required of us as Christians. So why were they given to the Gentile Christians at this time in the story of Acts? Well, even the, the language surrounding the rules shows that they aren't a moral decree. Right? The letter ends, Acts chapter 15, verse 29, right at the end there. It says, you will do well to avoid these things. Kind of what he's saying here is, it'd be really good if you could do this. Please be willing to do this. So, so what's the deal here? What's happening? Well, this whole thing started with Jewish people who had become Christians struggling with the fact that Gentiles were becoming Christians. Again, for generations and generations, the Jewish people had kept separate from the Gentile people because the Gentiles worshipped idols and were immoral. They were trying really hard to not be corrupted by their immorality as they had done so many times in the history of Israel. And God had given them special ceremonial rules to emphasize that separation to help remind them of this. And now these same Gentile pagans have turned to Christ and become Christians. That was hard. So the Jewish church leaders say to them, listen, you don't have to follow all the Jewish laws. You're not saved by them. And actually, we don't have to follow, we Jewish people, we don't have to follow all the Jewish laws either. But we're not, not ready to give it all up yet. This has been so important for us, for our entire lives and our entire history as a people. We're, we're struggling with this. Do you know what would go a long way to help us and help keep the peace? Don't act like pagans. Obviously, you love Jesus now and you're not sacrificing idol, to idols, hopefully. But even in the surface things, you know, we shouldn't have to remind you not to sleep with temple prostitutes, but we also understand that sometimes it's hard to change your ways of life. So you need to take that seriously. But even beyond that, for our sakes, please don't eat food that will make us think that you're sacrificing to idols. You don't need to give up pork and shellfish and whatever else. Just If you could not eat blood, including animals that have been strangled in the sacrifice, and just meat that have been sacrificed to idols in general, that will just help keep the peace so that we Jews and Gentiles can live together as brothers and sisters. We can be united by Jesus and not divided by anything. And we're told that's exactly how it went, right? When the letter came to the Gentiles in verse 31, the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. And, and they stayed around for a long time. And then verse 33 says, After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return with those who had sent them. There was peace. The churches were strengthened. These communities were able to live together as brothers and sisters in Christ. It, it worked. So the point of these four rules is love. That's the big answer to our big question. How does a Christian relate to the rules? It's through love. The Jewish church leaders were asking Gentile believers to please show love for their Jewish brothers and sisters in these specific ways. And ultimately, as Christians in general, that is our relationship with the rules as well. Jesus said it himself. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and uh, mind and strength. The second commandment is like it. Love your neighbors as yourself. And he says this sums up God's law and the prophets, all the Old Testament. This is true whether we're talking about God's commands, uh, God's commands and, or God's principles, whether they're application or conscience principles. Like thinking back to Bible college, 
I needed to not just think about whether the rules were ridiculous. And to be honest, some of them were. <laughs> and since I graduated 15 years ago, a lot of them have actually become less strict. But what I needed to think about in that context was how a university dorm can be a breeding ground for immaturity, for sin, for bad habits. And this school was trying to design the dorm life to build up ministers of the gospel, men and women who were going to serve in the church, who were going to grow up in purity, in maturity, in love for one another. And so there were rules to try and facilitate that. And yes, some of them were above the top, or over the top. The, the shaving rule, I still think, was dumb. But on the other hand, a lot of those guys were going to go and be pastors at conservative churches in, in the States, right? And so some of that stuff is going to matter ongoing for them. I needed to care more about the principle behind what was going on and to, to participate in that and started rolling my eyes. Let me give some more, some more concrete examples. One that comes up a lot is drinking alcohol. When, we think, when it comes to drinking alcohol, don't just think about whether you're allowed to because the answer is you, you are. That is, if you're over 19 and you're not breaking the law and if you're not getting drunk. Some of us need to not go any further than that to know that there's a problem, Right? But the rest of us need to think about how the way that you enjoy your freedom, how you drink or how you talk about it or joke about it, is affecting the others around you, whose consciences will be hurt by your freedom. You need to love the people around you more than you love the freedom to drink alcohol. Right? There are recovering alcoholics at our church. Some of them, you may not even know that. And the way that we talk about these things is hurting the conscience of people sometimes. So you need to, I'm not saying don't ever drink. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying don't think about it just in terms of what you're allowed to do. If your freedom is hurting those around you, you need to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Or I brought up pornography before. That's not an issue of conscience. It's a clear-cut application of a moral command to abstain from sexual immorality. So how do you actually do it if you're addicted to pornography? You fight through love. You fight through love. You don't just think about how guilty you will feel if you look at porn. You don't just think about how afraid you are of getting caught Think about how much God has loved you, what he's done to make you holy. Think about how much you love God. Think about the fact that God wants you to have a good, fruitful, and joyful life, and that all of his commands are for that purpose. If you're married, think about how much you love your spouse. Think about how much God loves your spouse. Think about how much God loves the people on your screen how you should love them rather than objectifying them and participating in their exploitation, possibly even their slavery. You can go through that for any sin you're tempted to commit, cheating on your taxes or disobeying your parents, overeating, overworking, laziness, anger, whatever. You can't do it just by pulling up your socks and trying harder. But as you rely on the Holy Spirit and remember the law of love, find your righteousness in Christ Ask him for help. Ask your brothers and sisters for help. Your relationship to these commands will be one of love. And you'll grow in these things and you'll be holy. 